Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Comic Book Page podcast. My name is John Mayo. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. Before we get going on this episode, quick little behind-the-scenes note. For the episodes I do with my sister, I use a Zoom H5. This is a handheld recorder. The reason I mention this is I use this device when we go to conventions, like the one we did recently in Dallas. So I've got to, you know, unplug everything, take it up there, etc., and then plug it back in when we get home. And when I do that, there are knobs in there for how loud the volume is, and sometimes those move and stuff. When I got it back home and set it back up where we watch uh, television and do the box lights, I didn't double check that the the volume knob hadn't gotten uh, misset, and it did on my side, substantially so. And we recorded a number of clips, uh, including this episode, and I've since tried to fix the audio as best I can. I think you can pretty much make out what I'm saying, but it is not audio quality I'm happy with. But it is either that or try to re-record the episode, and just normally that doesn't work out as well. So I just wanted to kind of, you know, apologize for the poor audio quality in this episode. I think if you go back over the other 1,100 and some odd episodes I've done, you'll note that normally it's much better quality than this. So with that, let's get going. In this roundtable discussion, I am joined by my sister Kay. We're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on Star Trek. This is a movie from 2009. But you could have just stopped at saying Star Trek for spoiler-filled. Yes, we're going to spoil most of the Star Trek franchise, some of the books, the movies, the TV shows, maybe even the cartoons, or even some of the comics. This was, though, when J.J. Abrams uh, retooled the franchise. He rebooted it with a lens flare every 10 seconds. Well, certainly lens flare was a major, I think he was heel. I hated the lens flare. Oh, so did I. But to his credit, while it created a new timeline, I'm going to quibble a little bit on the reboot, because we, we take aspects of the, it's an incontinuity ritual. Okay. It's not like they just pretended the original stuff never happened. Yeah. Well, and in fact... There was a line in one of the scenes with older Spock and young James T. Kirk where Jim looks at him and says, when you come from, did I know my father? Mm -hmm. And I really loved that exchange because it it just brings right to the heart of the matter the the effect and the, the depth of the effect it had on this individual. What I liked is... Not only that's how radically the timeline has shifted as far back as, as Kirk's birth, but also uh, Spock tells Kirk the father lived to see you become captain of the Enterprise. He was proud. And then at the end of the movie, when Kirk is becoming captain of the Enterprise, Spock is there watching. Yeah. Taking that kind of paternal role. Yeah. And having you, uh, Leonard Nimoy, the original Spock, having this take. Uh, you know, come out of events of the old timeline mm-hmm. is, in my mind, very, very different than if they had more or less just had 
kind of the same events, but not tied to the past animals. This is how Trek had always been. Yeah. I mean, kind of like how when um, Battlestar Galactica got rebooted. Well, and I didn't watch the Battlestar reboot in part because characters changed genders and yes. things like that. And I just found it very hard to wrap my mind around that was supposed to be what I knew and loved, but it was supposed to be not what I knew and loved. And I really appreciated that this came from what I knew and loved, but found different things to focus on, different things to emphasize, a different path to go down. Yes, very much so. And I remember when we first watched this in the theaters, I'm not an original series fan. No. But after we watched it, we went through the entire original series. Yes. Because I wanted to understand what had they seen in the original series that I, from not watching the original series, only watching the movies mm -hmm. with those actors, what had I missed? And most notably, and I kept hounding you when we got ready to watch it, most notably I wanted to know what had I not seen between Spock and Uhura that they well, had. And that, I think, is one of the bigger departures with this version is... But you see hints of it, and you can see what they saw yes. in the series that got them thinking, you know, that's a possibility. What I like about this, though, is by having that relationship between Spock and Aurora being very... I don't say open about it, because they kept it private. Yes. But when we saw those private moments, it showed a level of trust and respect they each had for each other. Yeah. Spock would not have been that open with anybody he did not trust implicitly. Well, and I loved at the very end when the two Spocks came face to face, when the older Spock said, effectively, I couldn't deprive you of a lifetime of friendship with James T. Kirk. Yeah. Well, and that was something that original Spock valued so much and just probably could not imagine what his life would have been like like without that. Yeah. What I also just found kind of humorous was how the older Spock, uh, you know, I'm not going to give my usual yes. live long and prosper because it would be oddly self-serving. He didn't say the line, but he yeah. was There was a sense of, and, and I think it was part of from what I was reading on the IMDb trivia page, what attracted Leonard Nimoy to coming back to the role. This summed up so much about Spock, and we see the totality of Spock. There was supposed to be a scene, or they thought about a scene, uh, where we see Spock being born, which is why Rono the writer was cast as his mother, even though she's way younger than the person cast as uh, Sarek. Mm, mm -hmm. Okay, the idea was, well, if we're going to go and do scenes at a, a 25-year different you know, point or whatever, mm -hmm. but seeing young Spock, uh, the now current Spock is that Quinto, uh, the elder Spock, and getting so many aspects of just the, the history of the character, some of it stated, some of it implied. Yeah. The, the depth of the relationship that he had with, with Kirk, that he, the new one has with Avura. Mm -hmm. There was just a lot of, of good material there. Yeah. Well, the scene in the ice cave where he tells Kirk, I have been and shall always be your friend. Well, and that was a nice callback. To the movies. Yeah. What I found interesting is when we get to kind of the campfire story, uh, as I like to call it, the events in that mind that are getting recounted, 
that was the four-issue uh, miniseries that IDW did mm. leading up to this, where we see that old timeline events that lead to this. And they bring in a couple other characters that we don't even mention here, because one, it wouldn't make any sense to Kirk. Um, but I think it was like Picard, Jordy, or Data, a few of those. Interesting, yeah. And it was written by, uh, I think it was written by, it was at least uh, heavy involvement by the writing team that did move. Interesting, yeah. And they stayed involved with the ongoing series that IDW has been doing. Nice. Um, and I really respect that. Because it shows that they're not treating the comic as a throwaway thing or just a money grab or, oh, yeah, somebody could license it, but who really cares? Yeah. They treat it as an integral part of what they're doing. Well, they used to to set the stage for what was going on here. And what I loved about that scene was the Spock character was planting the seed with the young James Kirk of... This has the potential to be a friendship for you. I know you think you hate each other now, but persevere. There's something here. Mm -hmm. Well, and as much as Spock may not be maybe trying to not uh, also pollute the timeline but influence it, that was something that he realized had to be. Yeah. And that literally the fate of, of the galaxy would be different if those two didn't get along, didn't interact, didn't work well together. Yeah. And getting Kirk back on the right path was not only the right thing for, for Kirk, uh, and older Spock had to feel really responsible for how we'd gotten everything off track for Kirk, but also for Spock personally. Yeah. You know, the younger Spock, whatever. Um, I liked how they handled the, the time travel type stuff. It allowed for a fairly serious overhaul of the timeline, how the ships look. Mm -hmm. uh, the the costuming, the weaponry, the level of action, all of that kind of stuff, yet still managing to pretty much stay true to classic Trek. The one thing they changed that, personally, I wish they hadn't, is how Kirk beats the uh, Kobayashi Maru. You know, it's funny, because I was just listening to the audiobook version of oh, interesting. the Kobayashi Maru book, mm -hmm. which tells how... Um, you mean classic continuity, because that book came out... Decades ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, before 1990, maybe? That's what I was thinking. Probably, yeah. Well, definitely before 1990. I'm not sure how much before. But it tells how Kirk, Sulu, Chekhov, and Scotty uh, dealt with that uh, situation. And each of them has their own kind of a take. We've gotten a bit of it in... Uh, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan is how Kirk did it. And there were a few things here that were in line with what we had heard in the movie, but I don't think as quintessential Kirk as what we got in the book. Well, Kirk, throughout the television series and then the movies, he becomes a bigger-than-life presence. Mm -hmm. he, be, he builds this reputation. In the original series... He's a bit of a legend in the making. Yeah. But certainly by the time of the movies, uh, definitely by the later ones, it's not just a legend in the making, but a legend and then some. Yeah, and certainly by the time you've gone on to the next generation and Deep Space Nine and all of that, he, he has established or was established as a, a pinnacle, a legend, a people learned about him. 
if you had studied one Starfleet captain, it was him. And that's why I thought there was something, I don't quite want to say prophetic, but the way he beat the Kobayashi Maru with, in the book, as I understand it, was altering the program to where they'd heard of him. Yes. And were intimidated or impressed by his reputation. It was, again, what you would have expected to have happen had older Kirk been in that situation and encountered a Klingon who was really aware of Kirk and also aware that he was not up to snuff to that. And that's what I liked about it, was that it was as if... Instead of Cadet Kirk facing the challenge, it was Admiral Kirk of 30 years later mm-hmm. facing the challenge. And so I, I liked that he solved the problem by facing it like he would 30 years from now when it was really happening. Well, it, it played true to the character. And that was one of the, that was probably the book that really got me uh, hooked on the structured novels at the time. See, and at one point, I think I had read all of the pocketbook uh, series that had come out up until wherever I kind of left off. Yeah, I I just didn't feel that what they did in the movie was as true to the way I think of the Kirk character being. The difference is, in the book, he was a conscientious objector. He thought it was unfair, and they had established in the book that the Kobayashi Maru test reality would kind of change. There was no way to win because the computer was constantly cheating. Mm. Okay, and would just adapt on the fly. Oh, you defeat these, these Klingon more calm. Oh, you deal with that, then this happens. Suddenly your shields inexplicably fail. Something that shouldn't cause any damage suddenly is, is you know, you're, you're crippled or something. Um, and Kirk kind of responded in kind, mm-hmm. but also in a way that was not immediately obvious. Whereas here, we get a Kirk that is has clearly cheated. Yes. You see the whole flickering of computers for a bit, the loose set, and it's obvious something should happen. Um, so the lack of subtlety, and then just the sheer arrogance. Yes. Whereas in the, the book, there was a, you know, am I going to get in trouble for this? There was a, is it going to even work? Well, and in the movie, there was a nothing believable about the way he won. Not now, not ever. In the book, it was just he reprogrammed the thing and we never really found out how. And there was also a folly of youth aspect to it. Agreed, but with that storyline, there's the potential that 30 years from now, he could have a reputation an enemy would have heard of. So there's the potential that 30 years from now, that would work out. Mm -hmm. Whereas even 30 years from now, what happened in the movie doesn't make sense. You see what I'm saying? Well, again, he cheated to where suddenly they were unarmed and everything. The dominoes just happened to fall in his his way. He was lucky. Yeah. Whereas in the book, he was just that good. Yes. Yeah. And it's a subtle distinction, but I think a very important one. And it comes down to whenever you take a well-established property and you try to continue with it as a new writer... Or try to, to retool it, or in this case, rejuvenate it. Mm-hmm. You've got to really understand what is the key aspect of each of the characters, of what makes it work. With some of the characters, I think they really got it. Others, maybe not so much. And I think Kirk is probably the one they, they, they probably veered on the most. They, they seemed to kind of waver 
on their understanding of him. Parts of him I think they got pretty well. Parts of him I wasn't sure on. Um, with Bones, what I thought was interesting, we didn't really see the Academy years. We arrived at the Academy or went and to it three two years, years later. later. But what we did get was this sense that they went off to the Academy at the same time and together. And three years later, they've still got each other's back. Yeah. They're still trying to support one another. So there's something has happened to build a loyalty to one another and to make it believable that when Jim's going to get left behind and everybody else, despite being cadets, is being thrown into war, that Bones would get him on that ship. What I'm trying to figure out is I don't know if in the TV show or the original crew uh, movies, if they ever really established how Kirk and McCoy met. You know, and the closest I can think of is in the movies when they would go camping it's clear and that, that kind of point, stuff. Been they're working together for decades, so they knew each other and hang out together. Yeah, but it seems to me there were some implied, like conversations that kind of danced close to it. But I think it was also some stuff in the original series, like when McCoy would bring the liquor to the captain of, "Okay, you've had a rough day. Talk to the bartender." Kind of a thing. Yeah, that it wasn't just, "Hey, we served on this ship together." Yeah, but seeing them first meet, and really it's the luck of the draw if he sat somewhere else. Yeah. You know. But I also like how Bones sits down next to, to Kirk, explaining, hey, he lost the planet in the divorce kind of thing. Yeah. Or got some bones. Uh, giving a different take on the name versus kind of the Sawbones sort of thing. Yeah. But he's also saying, just you get the, the obviously the paranoia aspect, but the um, pessimistic aspect. Everything yes. could go wrong. Going into space is a fool's errand because of, and here's a thousand reasons. Yeah. But, you know, hey, I'm going to throw up on you. And then when we get to the point where he's uh, drugged up Kirk so he appears sick to get him onto the Enterprise, Kirk's like, I'm going to throw up on you. They're callbacks. Yes. And they're, you know, reversals on those things. They, they take stuff that we're familiar with and play with it in different ways. Well, they did some nice stuff with uh, Kirk's father being a captain for 12 minutes and saving 800 lives. And at the very end, Kirk is a captain very briefly before he basically saves the entire crew. Yeah, well, the entire planet. Yeah, so... Uh, Earth, yeah. Well, what's interesting is they had established how, you know, Older Spock was saying how um, Kirk's father in the old timeline was what inspires him to become, going to Starfleet and become a captain. Whereas clearly this Kirk was rebelling against not having a father, the rough lives, universe, and all of that kind of thing. And Pike kind of steps in and is able to use Kirk's father to inspire him to in a very different way. Yeah. So there's uh, a nature-nurture implication on some of this stuff. Um, we get no real clue as to how different the lives of McCoy, Scotty, uh, Chekhov, uh, Uhuru, Sulu, and stuff are prior to the Academy stuff. True. We get a very clear indication of how Scotty's status quo is different. Uh, he's been essentially exiled to Siberia, sort of planet, or that kind of thing. Well, I thought that planet was entertaining because it reminded me so much of the Klingon prison planet. Yeah, we're a Pentha or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, and those are the callbacks I like. Yeah. The other thing is when we get to Scotty, which is about an 
hour and 20 minutes in. Good ways in. Yeah. Um, we see him in that station at his desk. There's like a birdcage kind of a thing with a tribble. Yeah, well, you know. What's funny is they did a the tribble story, which plays out very differently in this timeline. Oh, how funny. Than it did in the original one. And it basically starts at that scene. How funny. And, you know, I see that and it's like, I remember seeing the desk in the movie. And I'd actually pulled out the DVD. Because uh, I think this might have been an issue reviewed on the show. I don't remember. But I pulled out the DVD, got to that. Yep, it's right there. That's funny. But that's where it really is fun to have the people behind the, the movie stuff being really engaged on the comic side. Mm-hmm. There is that kind of give and take. Yeah. And the characters in the comics feel very much like the, the characters on the screen. Mm. There's just fewer lens flares in the comics. Thank God. You know, it's funny. When we sat down to watch this again, my first thought was, I know I'm going to be frustrated by the lens flares. And five minutes in, I was thinking, wow, I underestimated how much those lens flares were going to annoy me. It took you longer than me when we first had the meandering shot around the Kelvin. There were just so many lens flares and things of that sort that it's I lost track of how many times entire characters were wiped out by a lens flare. The one that got me that was Kirk has provoked Spock to, to showing just how distressed he is having lost all things, etc. Spock just about kills him. Mm-hmm. His father you know, calls his name. It takes about 20 seconds for Spock to stop. Spock then turns to face his father who's completely blocked out by a lens flare <laughs> until the camera adjusts a little, and then we can see who he's looking at. Yeah. I mean, wow, you pretty much just ruined that shot. Oh, it's amazing how frustrating it was. The other thing that I found fascinating was how much more like the movie version of, of the Enterprise this stuff was than the TV show. Mm, yes. Instead of all of the uh, bizarre light, you know, button-type things, there's actually a, a, a throttle lever for the, the ship. And mm-hmm. A bit more of the tangible stuff. Yeah. Um, but it, well, it looked different than the classic bridge of the original series. It also looked very much like a Starfleet bridge. Yeah. Just a bit later, a more advanced one. Yeah. So the question is, what exactly advanced some of the technology the way it did? Uh, you know, why did some of the stuff go out a little different? But they have, by and large, I think they have an outstanding cast. They did. Chris Pine did a very good job. It's a different Kirk than than Shatner's, and that's fine. Thor makes an excellent father. It was funny, because Chris Hemsworth played uh, Kirk's father, and um, Jennifer uh, Morrison, Morrison, from Once Upon a Time, played Kirk's mother. At that point, she was from House, but yes. Uh, Yes, uh, Once Upon a Time is after but again, recognizing some of these people more so now than, than back when we saw it at the theater. Um, but I think uh, Zachary Corner did a really good Spock. He did. And did it without feeling like he was mimicking or aping uh, Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Um, but it's if he had been, you know, cast as Spock back in the day, we would have gotten a very similar sort of Spock. Some nuances are a little different here or whatever, but it's it's iconic Spock. I think my favorite scene of his as Spock was actually when he was accepted to the Vulcan Science Academy. There's an aspect of his thanking them. Yeah. 
that had, you know, who lived long and prosper. Mm-hmm. There was a very understated um, current to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he conveys a lot very subtly. There was a beauty to that scene, and really from the moment it was, uh, please explain what you mean by disadvantage or... Yes, could you please clarify what you were referring to, which disadvantage should be Yeah, yeah. From there to the end of that scene, he just had a beauty to his performance. There was a subtle flipping of the switch of him realizing just how xenophobic and prejudiced these Vulcans are. Yeah. And it was, again, great, great performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl Urban as McCoy. I enjoyed him more this time than I did the first time. He, in various ways, is very much channeling DeForest Kelly and very true to that version of that character. Mm-hmm. Yet, I don't see who makes it his own. He owns that portrayal. Exactly, and it, it felt more natural to me this time. I think the first time I was just so aware of how much like DeForest Kelly it was that it just kept rubbing at me. This is so almost but not. And this time, because I was expecting that, it, I, I relaxed into it faster, and it felt more natural to me. I guess for me, he was very much, this is the character I'm playing. Here's the way that that person was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel he was trying to ape DeForest Kelly or mimic his performance, but almost taking it like the McCoy we saw in the TV show in the movies was a historical figure. That's what I was about to say. And yeah. this is who that guy is. Yeah. And he got it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, when he does the, you know, I'm a doctor, not a... a, a physicist. A physicist or whatever. Man, nails the delivery. Yeah. You know, and just there's an irony in some of the other lines when Kirk and, and McCoy are coming out of the thing after Spock has been, you know, almost basically trying to get Kirk thrown out of the academy. Uh, McCoy's like, I like that guy. Yes. You know, and it's like, that's just funny knowing the, the classic relationship. Yeah. And we see some of that later, you out of your Vulcan mind and stuff. Yes. Well, and I loved the scene where Kirk was trying to talk to Uhura, and uh, Bones was continuously giving him shots for yes. various reactions. Well, even that feels classic Trek. Yeah. It's like, go away, Bones, you're bothering me, I'm trying to do this. Yes, I know you're the doctor who needs to treat me right now, but, but don't do that anyway, you know. Kind of. Yes. There was very much a sense that the creators uh, of this and the actors themselves understood Star Trek. Yeah. Some to more than others, but the sensibility of the franchise and the original cast version of it specifically permeated this film deeply. Well, and it was interesting to see their idea of what would have happened if Spock had been captain and Kirk had been first officer. Like Sulu, I thought John Cho did a, a great job. Yeah. But not once was I feeling like he was doing the uh, George Takei voice. Yeah. Or mannerisms. Um, but he also was very much, this is like the best pilot you're ever going to get kind of a thing. Yeah. He's a natural with this. There are other parts where he, you know, when he volunteers to go on the, the you know, mission because he's got, you know, combat training. There's a little of, he just wants to go where the action is. Yes, yes. Um, so I thought he 
he, he did uh, just an outstanding job um, and had a different enough portrayal of Sulu while still being Sulu. Yeah. Um, in other words, he wasn't going kind of the Carl Urban route. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the, the dead-on portrayal of, of this, this character or whatever. But he kind of made it his own without going too far afield, which arguably I think is very, uh, uh, you could say about Pine. Chris Pine went his own direction with Kirk, and that's fine. Yeah. He did a great job with it. Um, Uhura, we get, we'd always gotten in the original series that she was really good at what she did. Yes. But here, I think they really kind of launched that up a notch or two. Yeah. And she is a force of nature in this universe. Yeah. Well, they've clarified that she's not reliant on the technology to feed her a translation. They set her up believably. Yeah. As somebody who is a hyper achiever, unbelievably gifted in terms of just her hearing, her mental facilities. She can speak who knows how many languages, is the best almost anybody has ever seen, you know, picking up audio, you know, things in the broadcast or you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of that, that pinnacle of, of perfection sort of person. And she doesn't suffer fools gladly. No. She is incredibly confident without being the least bit arrogant. Yeah. And has a little bit of a bemused uh, aspect when encountering Kirk, and at times a little bit even when doing a Spock. It's like, oh, you put me on a Farragut because you didn't want to see, you know, favoritism. That's so cute. Fix it. Yes. Yeah. And that scene right there, and he's like, yes, I guess you are on the Enterprise. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's like, he, he would be illogical to argue with her. Yes, exactly. You know, and again, I love the scenes, uh, both on the turbo lift, on the transporter pad, between Spock and Uhura. She's very cognizant and respectful if he is Vulcan, mm-hmm. and you don't do public displays of affection and stuff. She's also incredibly supportive of him. Yeah. And in a very uh, discreet, professional, and, and uh, but no, not reserved, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, if, I get it. Yeah, it's the kind of thing, she would do whatever she needed to to make sure she was okay. I also liked how when uh, Spock relieves himself of command, and Kirk says, yep, I'm captain now, she supports Kirk. While also telling him, I hope you know what you're doing. Yes, it's like, okay, you know, you're captain, got it, don't screw up. Yeah. You do, you answer to her kind of thing. Yeah, and that was what I liked about it. No, but just making sure that he knows that she supports him making the correct call for the ship, but not because she doesn't support her man. Yes. She's not bitter about what just happened. She's not thrilled about it. Mm -hmm. But she also realized Spock was in pain and hurting, and Kirk is probably their best chance to get out of this. Yeah. And certainly is in the right, has the right to make the decisions as captain and stuff, uh, because of, of Pike having put him as first officer, yada yada. Um, but also, there's there's that sense of lingering though. Yeah. In terms of, you know, I really hope you know what we're doing because she's not confident. Yeah, you know, there were some really great lines in the script, but one of my favorites might actually have been towards the end when uh, Captain Kirk was sent to Admiral Pike to relieve him of command. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, I relieve you. And Pike says, and I am relieved. 
It's just the way he delivers that line as he's sitting in that wheelchair. What I liked about that is it was almost three years, it felt like, to the day from when Kirk had gotten on that shuttle saying, I'll do it in three. Yes. And yeah. not just the, I'll graduate, but he becomes captain in three and saves, I mean, he was a man of his word. Yeah. Yeah. But- he'd proven Pike right. He'd saved Pike's life. He had done so much. He'd done what he promised he'd do. He'd done more than what he'd promised he'd do. Mm-hmm. And he'd really proven he was the man Pike thought he was. He proved to be the, the legendary Kirk he was destined to be. And that's part of why I wish they had left the Kobayashi Maru the way it was in the book. I would say that the Kobayashi Maru was a definite misstep. Not a Achilles heel kind of, oh my god, I can't believe they did that. No, but a they were... missed opportunity. They were trying to, in my opinion, they were trying to keep the explosions in the action as high and compelling as possible at every opportunity. Whereas the Kobayashi Maru, as it stood in the old continuity, would have played better in terms of foreshadowing and character development. I, I think the Kirk one, I agree with that. Yeah. There was one of the other ones where there was a lot of explosions in there. Oh, and I, I don't doubt that. Yeah. I'm just saying that for Kirk... No, for Kirk, setting up the he's a man to be reckoned with and everybody knows it yeah. would have been the better way to go. Um, again, with, with uh, going back to Aurora and stuff, having her as a very strong woman, a strong character, um, I thought was, was awesome. Yeah. Um, we'd always gotten some hints of that uh, from the original uh, series and stuff. And there was a line in one of the movies where the ship is almost in pieces kind of fun. Kirk is taking command. Some of the newer people on the ship are like, oh, well, he took over from Spock. What's going on here? Kind of fun. She overhears that and it's like, our chances of surviving just shot up by like time. Be thankful for this. Yeah. You know, and to me, that was the same sentiment. Her saying, you know, we're captain, I hope you know what we're doing. It was reflective of, because this Uhura didn't have a few decades of experience if he pulls the fat out of the fire every damn time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The other one, uh, obviously, to talk about is Chekhov. Yes. Uh, We're watching this just shy of a week after uh, Antonio Nelson's reaction has passed away. Mm which is a real shame. I thought he was just terrific in this. He's got one of my favorite lines. When Kirk and Sulu, Sulu has just fallen off the, the platform, the drilling platform. Kirk has skydived after him. They're falling and it's like, anytime we beat this up would be great. How about now? And um, Chekhov has been monitoring the situation. The transport of people at home, they don't know how to do this. And he's like, I can do this. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the... As he's running through the ship? He's running through the, I can do this. I can, you know. Yes. And he gets there, he's on the side, you know, and just the, the can do action. It's one of those things where you've got somebody who they, what, 17? Yeah, that's what they said. Young kid feeling a little out of his depth. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Uh, with the, no, no, this I've got. Yeah. You, you know, know, it's like, I may not be the, 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 the hand-to-hand combatant. I may not be... You know, the, the engineer, or the linguist, or whatever. This is this this is my specialty. Yeah, and it's funny because I never really got the sense in the original series or the movies that he was really the transporter genius or something. He was never coming across as a special specialist of anything. I disagree with that. He'd studied under uh, 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 Scotty at times, hmm. so he had some engineering stuff, and he later became kind of the weapons expert. 
Oh, okay. Okay, which was a good compliment to Sulu. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was something where it really showed the youthful enthusiasm that uh, it was one of the young aspects of Chekhov that was fun in the original series. You know, I meant to look up on IMDb and I didn't. Um, his parents, the actor's parents, were native Russians. They were both uh, figure skaters, I believe. Yeah. They came over, uh, yeah, they, they came over. And what I don't recall is I think he lived his whole life in America. I think he came over when he was six. Okay. That's I was going through the IMDb page. His that's what I was wondering. credits is surprisingly long. Staggering. Yeah. He, he was not that old. Yeah, he was 27, as I recall. And uh, I was wondering, basically, how much of that Russian accent is mimicking his parents? And how much of that is his own natural speech pattern? I think a lot of it is it's Pavel Chekhov's pattern. Yeah. Be- the Wessels, the V's yeah. and the W's. Because I love the way he has to work so hard at that security code. When he's getting the PA clearance and he has to do the Victor, which <laughs> Victor. Yes. I loved it. What I thought was hilarious is you've got the captain saying, uh, you, the, the ensign, the, the, the con, why don't you tell everybody what our mission is? Yes, yes. It's like, there's times to delegate. Like, I don't think that was one of them. I know, right? But it was... It was fun to have the accent and that stuff. I also liked how when uh, they were trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? We're going after Nero and stuff. That uh, Chekhov was kind of in the back using one of the, the glass, I guess, whiteboards. Yeah. It seemed to be, you know, like a pen tablet display. It was actually kind of cool. And it was something that if you don't really pay attention to, you don't even notice. Because I didn't notice any previous humans. But he's figured out what to do because he's a smart guy. Yeah. He's got the math and stuff like that. Uh, and he's like, we can do this, this, and this. He's like, you know. Yeah. And of course, people like, well, you know, how old are you again? Yeah. Um, but he, he, he holds his own. Yeah. Um, I thought, again, he was terrific here. Uh, good in the next one. I have no doubt he'll be uh, awesome in uh, Star Trek Beyond. Definite loss. Uh, passed away at a fairly young age. Yeah. And for any listener that's not aware of what had happened, my understanding, I could be wrong, is essentially he had, uh, he was in the car, pulled down the driver, which had a bit of an incline, tossed it in the park, went out to, to get the mail, the car rolled back, pinned in between the car and the, uh, the mailbox or something like that, and, uh, Yeah, and he lived in a gated house. Yeah. And the reports I was seeing basically implied even if someone drove by and saw what happened, all they could do was call 911 because he was pinned by that gate, which is now dented, as well as the concrete pillar of the mailbox. So they couldn't get to him to help him. Well, and I understand it was, uh, I think it was Cherokee that had this as a known problem. Yeah, and it happened around one in the morning. And so. The Jeep Cherokee company, or Fiat, whatever the whole company is, they, uh, my understanding is, issued a statement saying, well, we're sorry for his death, you know, we're going to him. They, they, I don't see taking ownership of it because they're not claiming responsibility. No, but. But they are compassionate about it. Yeah, and there's a recall on it, but my understanding is they've said, we're, we're trying to figure out how to fix the problem, but we don't have a fix in place yet. Yeah. So it's something owners need to be aware of. And I really feel for. 
the entire cast and crew of, or in some cases, worked with me for, mm-hmm. for many years. And we've got the Star Trek Beyond just about to come out in a month or so. And to have to, to deal with the grieving and all of that, that's... I feel for Walter Koenig, who can't have anticipated in a million years, outliving the actor who played the younger him, as well as his own son. Yeah, Walter uh, uh, Koenig having become the first original series actor to outlive his replacement, who was 50 years old. Probably. I mean, it's just... surreal. And again, having outlived his son, it's... it's, uh, I just can't Nobody fathom it. Should, I mean, there, there is very few good ways to die. No. And for somebody where Anton has just was doing such a great job, has I think three or four other movies that are going to come out at some point. One of them this year he did, I think, Clumsy Smurf, uh, the voice of. Huge body work, very talented. He was somebody that easily uh, could have become a major, even more major name than his name. Um, and provided us decades of entertainment yeah. had it not been for this tragic accident. Yeah. Um, but I thought he was just fun to watch in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that the first couple of times I've seen the film. Um, so again, we've, we've talked about Kirk. We only haven't really talked about Scotty. Yes. We mentioned only that he came in so late. Yeah. Um, Scotty as an engineer is, is just so connected to the Enterprise. For him to be literally the last guy to get on board. Yeah. He's kind of funny. And Simon Pegg does a really fun version of the younger Scotty. And I want to clarify, younger Scotty versus movie Scotty. Yes. Because that was the character I think shifted the most. Um, just look and, and, and whatnot. Um, in, uh, Simon Pegg was definitely not channeling James Dean. Wasn't doing kind of the rivals or the accents or you know what I mean. Yeah. But also it was the epitome of what Scotty is. You know, very much a mechanic, engineer, the the, the the guy who's gonna get his hands dirty playing with the stuff. He he just can't not do that. When he had some really great scenes, but again, you know, I, I think each of them kind of had a favorite scene for me and for him it was when they were on the bridge. And uh, Kirk was trying to bait Spock into showing his temper. Yeah, Spock's like, tell me how you did, how you got on the ship. And Kirk's like, don't answer. And finally, Scotty's like, I don't want to take sides. <laughs> and to me, that's classic Scotty. Yes. There's a, an aspect of the diplomat there. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, well, and then at the end, when Spock leaves the bridge, and Scotty's saying, I like this ship. Yeah, he's like, this is a cool toy. I'm staying. <laughs> Cool toy, good crew. I like it here. I uh, I just found Scotty to be fun. There was the absolute ludicrousness of the when they beam on board and you've got the water slide scene. Yes. I mean, there there are a couple of places where it's like you know this is not funny so much as just utterly ridiculous. But it's like okay, we'll go with it because they want to lighten it up, have a bit more humor. There are a lot of people that will not forgive these movies for the trans warp transporta- transporter magic. I like that they at least had it as a key plot point in this film. But there's also, I think, a how it should have ended or one of the YouTube things that takes these things and says, well, really, if they'd done this, this is how it would have happened. And basically how they uh, 
I think they have uh, Scotty and Kirk kind of like show up in the, the, the bay with all the where the shuttles should be. Yeah. And the guy's like, yep, yeah, no need. <laughs> we just beamed everybody off the planet. We're done. Here, I'll go to Vulcan and back. He beams out, comes back. See? You know, and just how it like cuts the need for, for Starfleet entirely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and somehow you reminded me that uh, my least favorite scene of the movie might be when uh, they transport into the alleged cargo bay of the Romulan ship. Yes, if this ship has any sensible design, I'll put it in the cargo bay. To which your response is, you know, if they had just found where Pike was, the only human on board this ship, they'd know where to go being. Okay, everybody listening, you can feel sorry for John because I really did scream that out in the middle of the movie. There are aspects of us watching films like this where sometimes I even pause the film. Because there was one point early on where it's like, hang on a sec. For this to have happened, Sulu had to essentially forget the parking brake to delay them. Yes. Um, Uhura had to complain about not being the get to be on the ship. Mm-hmm. McCoy had to actually take enough pity on Kirk to drug him up to get him onto the ship. Yes. Had to wake, uh, Kirk had to wake up at the right time to overhear... Lightning storm. The lightning storm stuff out of, out of Chekhov's stuff. Piece it together, having already been in Uhura's room back at the Academy a day yes. or two prior. Sleeping with the uh, Orion sex the slave o- girl. Oh, uh, cadet. Um, but the number of, of, of things that just had to happen for Kirk to be able to put all this together and say, oh, we're about to come into a trap and stuff. And then when he finally gets to Uhura and his tongue get, turns numb, he can't think to say the word trap. That whole bit with the inflated hands, the tongue. Again, ridiculous. Fun, but ridiculous. Oh, I was laughing my head off as I was screaming, trap! Just say trap! What kind of a doctor is McCoy who would not check for these sorts of things? Where the hell is the damn tricorder when we need it? Did we see a tricorder? I don't think we did. I don't think so either. In the Kelvin, we see the classic communicator. The communicator was different by uh, the time we see the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. The phasers are very different looking with a front part that has two emitters, one for stun and one for kill, presumably, that kind of rotate around. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting design. It looks cool. It just seems kind of impractical. And I like the classic look of the stuff. The, yeah. the original phaser. The classic communicators. Now, just as a quick aside, Think Geek uh, has a TV remote phaser mm-hmm. that I, I picked up um, that was not cheap. But man, it's like a prop. It's a dead-on prop replica. All the effects, the, the Type 1 phaser comes out of the top. It's awesome. Uh, they also have a Bluetooth uh, communicator that'll connect to the phone, which I ordered also at the same time six, seven, eight, nine months ago, but has finally shipped. Oh, nice. That too was, was not cheap. Details. Um, at some point, I may, and they also, the, the phaser at least, really nice Starfleet type carrying case, like, like you would see in the equipment locker on one of these ships. Several friends on Facebook have told me to stop going to the Think Geek website. <laughs> I'm not it, saying it's a bad habit. It can be expensive. Um, but I like some of the gizmos and tools. I don't think we ever saw the tricorder. I don't think so. Um, and I really don't think the, the new phaser or the new communicator, uh, again, one movie versus, you know, decades of, of 
yeah. saturation of all that stuff. But I thought Scotty, um, him being on the ship so little, again, maybe it's hard to get Simon Pegg's time or whatnot, but I think Simon Pegg has taken definite, I think he would have insisted being in the show mm. some way, shape, or form if he hadn't been invited. My understanding from the page is he didn't have to, to audition. He's like, JJ is like, we'd like to have you. He's like, uh huh. He does no it well. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, Scotty just had a, you know, I'll try and eke a little more power out type attitude in the show, and especially later in the movies. And we just never really got that aspect. But part of that's it's a brand new ship. There's the miracle worker. Yeah. Scotty. That aspect. That we get here, when you've got the singularity that's taking down your ship. That's true. You're stuck in the gravity well, and he's like, I'm giving you all she's got, Captain, kind of the classic line. And Kirk's like, yeah, that's not good enough. I need more. Scotty, you can see his mind just racing. Well, if you try this, it might, you know, explode, eject the warp core, explode it, that might be enough, and Kirk's like, do it. Because at this point, the ship is, like, shaking itself apart. You're seeing the yeah. stress cracks. Yeah. Which goes back to McCoy's earlier line of all it takes is one little crap suddenly, you know, yeah. you're dead. Um, I just thought they did a terrific job casting it, writing it, rethinking it. Yeah. Being, I felt very respectful of the fans' uh, attachment to the old truck. Yeah. And not saying it never happened, but oh, guess what? We're redoing it. So those things clearly did happen. We still got on Spock. When the but ama- they're not going to happen again that way. The amazing thing to me was watching this movie back when it was in the theater prompted me to not only watch the entire original series, but to really enjoy the entire original series in a way I'd never been able to before. Yeah. And to me, that's a real credit to this film. They really showed just how much fun this universe can be. And it's, to me, it's never been a Star Trek or Star Wars kind of debate. Both are fun in many mm-hmm. ways. There's an, an aspect of the Star Trek universe that I find just really cool from both the technobabble point of view and all of those sorts of things. Um, this one, you know, more dangerous? Yes. More action? Yes. Um, there's a certain amount of, you know, it's not where you go to vacation. Whereas, you know, Enterprise or Next Generation or. There was definitely more peace and goodwill in the original TV shows. Yeah. And again, it was movie versus TV show, just kind of a difference there. Yeah. Um, I've been, again, following the comic they've done based on this and really enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun. They've done some telling slash new takes on the Tribbles episode and a few other key episodes. Um, the books that I've read over the past few years from the Star Trek universe, and you'll Help me get the names right, I hope. Um, but by Christopher L. Bennett. Oh, the uh, Department of Temporal Affairs. Yeah. I have really enjoyed those. One of them took all of the time travel episodes from the various TV shows yeah. and just kind of sorted them into a logical, chronological order and made them make sense. What I would really like to see them do with that kind of a book mm-hmm. is deal with the ramifications of this movie. Mm, mm-hmm. They send agents back, and they're ultimately getting Shatner Kirk and Chris Pine Kirk kind of a... Yeah. It's like, we've got two competing timelines. What's going on here? Yeah. Um, they may have the two casts meet 
in the IDW comics series in this show. Oh, interesting. Um, but this is just a, a film where they, I don't say did the origin story, if you will, but kind of, sort of. They got the crew together, they got the band together, told a really good, fun story. Um, change what needed to change to work with a modern audience. Well, in some respects, modern I, movie audience. Yeah, I feel that. I kind of want to say that this version of Star Trek is more Old Testament, where the TV show was more New Testament. This is more eye for an eye and vengeance yes. versus turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor. To me, it's more action than science fiction. Mm. And I don't mean any of this as any kind of a judgment. Oh, no. And I don't mean it as a bad thing, but just a different expectations. Well, a different mindset. Yeah. And I don't think there was anything broken in Star Trek that needed fixing, but I do think that casting it into more of an action-adventure kind of a, a property makes it more appealing to a lot of people these days. Um, but I also miss that weekly, let's go back onto the ship and mm. have a, an adventure, a little bit of a moral of the story, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, part of why I've been enjoying watching like, the Star Trek continuing stuff on YouTube. Uh, things like that. Um, and again, we've done a, a roundtable on some of these fan projects and stuff. Uh, but to me, this film was a, a clear turning point for Star Trek, leaving option for people to tell stories in the original continuity mm-hmm. uh, to fit them to, to go in a new direction. Um, I'm very curious what's going to happen in Star Trek Beyond. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it, although, to be honest, I'm not having a lot of buzz. There's an aspect of the, the trailer that seems more kind of fast and furious, uh, which is what the direction's from, in Star Trek. But hey, if it's a fun action film, I'll go with that too. But I'm really curious where they're going to go with the TV show. Yeah. Are we going to, which timeline is in, what time frame is in, what's the premise, all of that. When I was originally drawn to Gene Roddenberry's very hopeful future, very idealistic, Things will get better if we work at it. It's funny because I was, before we watched it tonight, I was reading the movie page, and there was a thing kind of implying that you hear was, was wanting to have that hopeful, more optimistic viewpoint. One, because it's classic track, and two, uh, kind of, I think, a little bit of a rebellion against like Batman Begins and some of those other things that are, I like the, 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 a bit more dark and grim and gritty and stuff, and it's not necessarily realistic. But while I think overall this still has that positive outlook, that Mm -hmm. sense of hopefulness for the future, it starts with a ship getting completely wiped out and demolished and stuff. That's not very uplifting. No. Totally outclassed and stuff. You see an entire planet getting posted. As revenge for another planet having been destroyed. Yeah, but swallowed into a black hole. I mean, you're seeing massive destruction, very dark and grim things. Yeah. Oh, wait, it's a brightly lit ship. It must be hopeful. But what I love about the Star Trek franchise is it is painting a picture of a better future for us. Mm. Not an easy future. True. Not a threat-free future, but one that if we work together, we can overcome. And by working together, the sense of inclusiveness that the, the franchise has always had yeah, uh, from day one, and sometimes it's had more of than other times, um, but the, the diversity of the characters, of the mindsets, without, well, they focus on the infinite diversity, diversity and infinite combinations as part of the ideology, it's always more of a message of working together and leveraging the strengths of the individuals and 
having their difference complement each other versus seeking out diversity for the sake of diversity. Yes. Um, and I think what Gene Roddenberry, maybe not literally what he put together, but what he put together has become, mm-hmm. has literally changed the world. Yes. Because while I was talking about that, that Bluetooth communicator, flip phone, cell phones. Mm, yeah. Inspired by communications in any shape or form. Floppy disks. I was going to say, those old enough to remember the three and a half inch floppy disks. Yeah. Look back at original Trek and you see these little plastic or wooden disks, whatever they were, the memory disks that everybody, they, that's the same sort of a thing. Yeah. There is a competition going on for building a tri- medical tricorder. Yeah. That actually works. Yeah. There's an aspect of the show that had the science fantasy aspect to it, but was enough science fiction to inspire science. Yeah. And many of these things have become science fact. Even go to the beginning of Next Generation, the uh, computer Picard had on his desk, the, the tablets they all have. Yeah. We have those. We have stuff better than that now. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, Star Trek not only is fun and entertaining, the franchise itself, again, literally has changed the world for the better. Well, I know a lot of people have been saying that these new Star Treks are lacking on the cerebral side versus the action side. But as I pointed out to you right before we sat down to talk about this, uh, the Virginia Military Institute, VMI, back mm-hmm. during the Civil War, had an entire class of cadets that somebody showed up and said, you cadets are now going out into the field despite having not yet reached graduation because there's a battle and we need soldiers. So come on. It's funny because Kirk is basically getting rid of the riot act and stuff for having she and Kodiashi move. Somebody comes in, they've gotten the distress signal from Vulcan. Suddenly that meeting's over, everybody's getting farmed out to ships, we're heading to Vulcan. Mm-hmm. And it would have been very interesting if, as Kirk and McCoy were heading over to go do that, McCoy's like, what's going on? This, this, this makes no sense. You know, we're mm-hmm. trained cadets, whatever. Uh, and then for Kirk to basically spout that, that history. Yeah. Because there are enough times from when he first meets Uhura and stuff. And he already knows what xenolinguistics is, and he did. Yeah, exactly. It shows he's smart. Yeah. You know, um, there is an aspect of the moral of the week and things like that that I do think this is missing, but I don't know that a two-hour movie every other, every third year, whatever, is the place for that. No, but I wonder if the TV show will bring back the social awareness that the previous shows had and some of those aspects of Trek that those of us who've watched the various previous TV shows really respected and enjoyed. For me, with the new show, knowing is it set in a starship, a starbase, are they going out somewhere they're exploring other military, are they whatever, or is it something completely different? Mm. Not saying there's a right or wrong, but that'll influence my thinking. Yeah. When we get the casting information, yeah. is this something where it seems like they're all birds of a feather? Mm. Or there is this diversity in different mindsets, and it feels more globally representative or not. And again, not saying there's a right or wrong, the right, right actors and stuff for the job. Yeah. Um, but again, trying to uh, to have that inclusiveness, that sense of everyone belongs, we're all moving to a better future. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I want out of, out of the, the show. That's you know to a degree what we're getting out of some of these movies and stuff like that. 
And even if we don't, it's screwing the channel. I loved having this movie end with Spock doing almost but not quite the familiar voiceover. Yes. They they changed from when no man was going before to no one was going before or something like that. And it was the ongoing mission. The ongoing mission, yes. But having Nimoy in that classic yeah. this is Star Trek. Yeah. And the classic uh, audio cues and stuff like that. There is Oh, nostalgia is the right word or not. But it very much felt like this movie launched the series. It, it, it very was a new beginning. Yeah. And again, a new beginning without discounting or disrespecting the old. Yeah. And a handing of the baton, having uh, Nimoy from the original cast back as Spock, which is really cool, and him giving the blessing, if you will, to, to the new versions. Yeah. Um, I'm glad they did it. I, I really love the franchise overall. Um, looking forward to Star Trek Beyond when it comes out, and again, the TV show, as we get more information, we won't lose any more this January. That sounds right. Anything else on this? Is that pretty much it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.